Bismillahirrahmanirrahim wa sallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Peace and love. It feels like a year since I sat here and since we've spoken. And it's actually been six weeks, but in the two years that we've been doing the Travelers Podcast, me and BK1, we only missed one week and that was just because of a contract thing. We were trying to get uh, settled on the terms for this new sponsor that we were bringing on. That's when BetterHelp came on as a sponsor. And we had the episode ready to go. It's just we had built it in for that to be the launch of the partnership with them. And we still were ironing some things out. So we had to miss one week just because of that. But in two years and 100 episodes, we've been here every single week for you. And you've been here every single week for us. So I want to start at the outset by apologizing for taking a break. Not that there's anything wrong with taking a break. I think rest is part of work. I think human beings need to take breaks. We need a reset. Sometimes we need to re-energize. Sometimes we need to stop talking and just listen for a while. We just need to be with ourselves for a while. I do think it's important to not be a public person all the time. But ideally, the way to conduct oneself in a relationship is that if you're going to make a change, uh, communicate that. And I didn't plan on taking this break, and so I didn't communicate it. So I just want to apologize from the outset and thank you for being here and let you know that we have no plans to discontinue the podcast. We have absolutely every intention to continue the podcast. We love doing this podcast. And... Um, We've got some amazing guests coming up and some things to talk about that are really beautiful. But I want to give you a little bit of background for why we took this break and why it came when it did. Not to excuse it, but just to explain it, just to give the context for it. So as you know, if you were listening before the new year, uh, I was on tour. I did about a six or seven week run in the States after living in Istanbul for three years. And I've done tours in the States, but this one was different. I was with a different group of people, and the circumstances were just different. And honestly, it was a really successful tour. I learned so much from being on that tour. It also was really challenging in a lot of ways. They were very good. It was challenging in really good ways for the most part. And not only, you know, physically or whatever, but I also had things going on in my life and in my career that made it really challenging. And some of that I talked about. And some of it was personal, and so I didn't necessarily, you know, open all the way up about it. But so I came back from the tour, and while I was on that run, my body just held up so amazingly well. My energy was high. Uh, I was in really peak kind of physical condition for myself and my own journey. If you listen to this, you know I'm on a three-year kind of like reset of the way that I live my life. Like I'm not on a diet. I'm not on a, you know, I'm in a three-year reset that really was inspired by not wanting to be fat anymore. But then also Dr. Ebony, who is a food relationship coach and a trained, licensed professional mental health worker. We have an episode with her. A lot of people skipped it, but I would really go back and check that episode out. She really is the one that really framed it for me, that if you have this big goal, like I'm trying to lose, my initial goal is to lose 65 pounds. I was trying to get back to, it was like, you know, you just have to set a goal somehow. So I said, man, the weight that I was when I met my wife, <laughs> right before my album came out, right before, right, you know, that I'm trying to get back to that weight. Um, 
you know, for so many years, I just, I haven't been an athletic person. And so I didn't even know. I didn't, I didn't know how much I was supposed to weigh. Most of my adult life, I wasn't even weighing myself. I didn't have any kind of guidelines for what I ate, except I didn't eat pork, you know. And then at some point, I started eating only halal meat. And so that did something. And then there were a few years where some people were talking to me about you know, the keto thing and, and plant-based. And I just tried different things. And finally, when I moved to Istanbul, I met a really a person who's become a dear friend of mine. We're actually about to board a plane in a few hours and go to London together. Um, I'm going to shout out my man. His name is Ahmed Fahmi. Uh, his brother is a well-known Islamic scholar. Um, and his sister is a social justice activist and a professor, and he just comes from an amazing family, and he's an amazing man. He runs triathlons and dicathlons and panchtastanons and all kind of things, marathons. and I mean, this is just, you know, a, a person that's incredibly dedicated to being and living healthy. And he also is a, he's a coach and helps people in their professional path. And so we've had conversations uh, where he's helped me a lot with that as well. But he's my neighbor in Istanbul, and so I, I sat with him and I said, man, I'm ready to change the way that I live and I'm ready to change the way that I feel and the way that I eat and the way that I move. You know, and I was in my early 40s. I'm in my mid 40s now. And he said, man, it's not too late. You can feel the best you've ever felt. Like if you've never done really anything intentional, then these can be the best years of your life. And I'm very fortunate that I don't have pain. I never had high blood pressure. I never had high blood sugar. I never had high, I never had any of that stuff. No, my joints don't hurt. I don't have back pain. I'm very, 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 very grateful. I mean, my teeth are healthy. I, you know what I'm saying? Like, for all that not paying attention, I'm a pretty healthy person, except that I was incredibly overweight, and I have been for a long time. And it's weird, man. People always say, like, did you lose weight? And I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure I gained weight. Um, but so he got me started. And one of the things he said to me is, I can give you some ways to start and I'm going to connect you with a personal trainer that speaks English at the gym in our neighborhood. He said, I can give you some things to eat. I can give you some things to do. You can go work with this trainer, but ultimately this is all going to be short term. It's all going to be up and down until you really deal with your relationship with food and your relationship with your body and your relationship with your own emotions. That's what's really fueling all this. When those things get well, you will get well. And that's what this process is going to be. And so I started thinking about that, and I started looking into, you know, my wife followed Dr. Ebony because my wife's a black therapist. Dr. Ebony's a, a black therapist that has a really dope social media following. And I knew that Dr. Ebony had this podcast called Food Is Not Bay. like food is not your sweetheart. Food is not your friend. Food is not your, your honey bun, you know what I'm saying? Like... Food is there for a particular reason, and we have a relationship. So I started listening to her podcast. I started reaching out to her. And she said, if you have a goal like that, give yourself three years. And so I'm about two and three quarters of, of the way to three years, if that makes sense. Uh, my birthday, July, will be three years, end of July. And of the 65 pounds that I set out wanting to lose, I hover between having lost 50 and 55 pounds of it. So at this point, I'm between, I got between 15 and 10 pounds left. Right now it's probably 15. 
When I was in the U.S. last, it was probably 10. And that feels really good. You know what I'm saying? I'm going in a, in a good direction. And what she said is that if you give yourself that long, you're just going to learn a lot. You know what I'm saying? And the idea is that you will trend in the right direction. And it's also not all about the scale. The scale is only one part of it. So when I'm working with my trainer, I'm lifting weights and I'm gaining muscle, but I'm losing body fat. You know what I'm saying? So the scale is saying different stuff. So it's not all about the scale. But she said, you know, if you if you give yourself that length of time, what's going to happen is whether you hit the goal on the on the scale or not, you're going to change your relationship with food. And that has actually absolutely happened. So when I was on that tour, I mean, I used to have trouble with my voice, like really bad trouble with my voice. And I still do because I damaged my voice over the years. And a lot of that, I didn't realize until I lost so much weight that a lot of that was me just carrying so much extra fat on my body that I couldn't breathe right. And your voice is a combination of, it's mostly your diaphragmatic breathing. It's mostly your breathing is what fuels our voice and, and really gives our voices energy. And then, But that it comes up and it comes through our throat and our nose and our head and our chest and all that stuff. The voice is a mixture of all of that. And so because of the fact that I was carrying so much weight, it was so hard for me. To, I was working my body, my heart, and my breathing were working so hard. And I mean, I'm an old school rapidy rap old, old head, you know. I'm a dude that, like, I've got a lot of bars, and I'm not rapping over my vocals. Like, I'm saying every word of every song. You know what I'm saying? And there's nobody on stage. I'm doing an hour plus every single night. That's a lot to ask of your vocal cords, but especially if you're like 70, 80 pounds overweight. And I'm probably more than that. Like realistically, I was trying to get, you know what I'm saying? I was I was trying to get to a certain weight that honestly on paper is still more than I'm than I should weigh from my height. But I remember that weight and I remember it felt good. So that's just the the goal that I set. And so I just realized being that overweight was putting such a strain, like so much, like, you know, when your computer starts breathing heavy and you're just like, man, I can't open my programs. And you know what I'm saying? That's what was happening. So I was putting a lot of, I was requiring too much of my throat and I was tightening my vocal cords and tightening my throat. And that's what was really hurting my voice. So once I lost the weight, I started getting on tour and it's like, yeah, I still have permanent damage to my vocal cords. That's true. And I need to be well, I need to be healthy. But if I'm if I'm healthy, my voice is fine. I can get out here and move. I can perform. I felt great. You know what I'm saying? I was performing at a high level. I just felt amazing. And, you know, so I got done with the tour and I, but I wasn't sleeping a whole lot. I wasn't resting the way that I wanted to. And I came back from the tour and I got really sick. I already the jet lag kicked in. And I got really sick. I was out for like two weeks. And finally, my wife had to tell me, like, you need to go to the hospital. Like, you got to go and see what's up with some antibiotics or something. So I did. And they gave me antibiotics. And, you know, after a while, I started feeling better. But then we shifted gears into this new album. So I'm recording this on Thursday night. I leave in, on, in, the, in a few hours uh, to go to London. Me and my man Ahmed are going to see our mutual friend, Amir Rahman, who's one of my dearest friends, incredible political comedian. He's got a piece called, uh, he's got a joint called Reverse Racism. If you look it up, Dave Chappelle called this thing the Rosetta Stone. 
of political humor. He's amazing. He's really dope. He's not for everybody. You know what I mean? He is definitely has a very like radical political point of view. If that's not your thing, you might not enjoy him. You might not like him. He actually might really bother you. And that's cool. That's fine. I, you know what I'm saying? A lot of the art that I love is like that. But man, I just know with everything going on in the world, like this guy, he's been gone for a minute, for years. And he's coming back doing a week of shows in, in uh, London. And so... And he's our neighbor also here in Uskudar in Istanbul. So me and my man Ahmed are going to go see his last couple nights of shows. So excited. So I'm recording this Thursday night. Friday, we drop a new single. I'm so, like, nervous. And, like, man, I'm so grateful, too. Um, we're dropping a single called Ottomans. And we're announcing a new album called Love and Service. Um the way that this thing came about is just such a beautiful story. So, you know, I was, I, right when we moved to Istanbul, it was really traumatic. Leaving Minneapolis, leaving our house, you know, um, it's just like, where do you begin the story? But, I mean, Minneapolis literally was on fire. Uh, there was a, I don't like the word cancel culture, but there was a cancel culture thing happening in the music community that I was in. I was in the process of going out on my own and not being on rhyme stairs anymore in terms of how I do my business. You know, musically, that's a family that I'm forever part of. I'll never be without them. They'll never be without me. Um, you know, I just spent an hour on the phone with Ant. I love those people, you know what I'm saying? But business-wise, it wasn't good. And business, and when I left Minneapolis in the middle of the pandemic with no shows, I was broke as hell. My wife is a med is a mental health professional, but she does community mental health. You don't do that for the money. Like honestly, the student loans are greater than the amount of money she makes, because she works for an agency. You know what I'm saying? And it's just it's just what it is. So we left our house, and it was really traumatic and very difficult and heartbreaking. We came to Istanbul, Turkey, with the idea of starting a new life. And before that, I spent about a week in Yellow Springs, Ohio, where Dave Chappelle had Chappelle summer camp during the height of the pandemic. Nobody could be around each other. Everything was quarantined. And Chappelle, no matter what you think of him, um, I love him very much. And I don't have to agree with everything everybody says for me to love them and recognize their importance. I feel like if somebody is really trying to speak the truth as they understand it, they're going to say some things that not everybody agrees with, even their friends, even people that normally rock with them. That's what I come from. I'm from that, you know? And so there are very few people that I agree with every single thing they say. And But Chappelle is an amazing human being. He's an incredible artist. And he's known for being incredibly generous. And so he built this situation in Yellow Springs, Ohio, where there was a a team with a COVID test and you would come in and he created like an artist bubble. So all these artists were flying in from all over the country and around the world. People were coming and hanging out. They, they were recording the Midnight Miracle podcast. Um, you know, uh, some comedians, a number of my comedian friends were like living there. People like went there and like just got an apartment or got an Airbnb long-term or something like that. So Mo Amr was there. Donnell Rollins was there. Michelle Wolf was there. Azhar Usman came in and out. Amir Suleiman came in and out. Um, you know, uh, 
all these incredible people. Uh, my man David Banner was there while I was there. Really incredible, beautiful situation. I, I mean, Common was there. Yasin Bey was checking in from, you know, he lives abroad. And Yasin Bey, so, so that time when I was like, man, I don't know what's going on in my city. I don't know what's going on in my creative community. I, I'm extremely broke. I don't know if my career is over. I don't know if my life is over. So many people felt that way, and I did too. And I was like, I don't know what to do. And I went to that to that environment, and he Chappelle created this situation where there's outdoor shows at this, you know. And so, you know, we go and they do these outdoor shows, and he would just call me up on stage. And he would give like an introduction of me that just thinking about it makes me want to cry because it was such a low moment. And like so many of the people that I look up to the most artistically, Feral Munch and Black Thought and, you know, um, Quest Love and, you know, Common. And that's the group of artists that I wanted to be down with. Like if I could have chosen the cohort I would have been in, that's who I wanted to be with. And now I'm friends with those people. <laughs> I still have never you know, being accepted by that listener group. So the, the hip-hop world doesn't see me as being in that space. But that's what I wanted to join. I'm very happy who I ended up with. I ended up with Slug and Merce and Aesop Rock and, you know what I'm saying, uh, Open Mike Eagle. And I'm very happy with who I ended up with. Sage Francis, all these people. Immortal Technique, I love these people. Chino XL, you know what I'm saying? The list goes on. And then there are some people that, that kind of weave in between worlds. And I've done some of that, too. But I was with the people who them of, like, validating me meant the most to me. It really meant a lot to me. And in that moment, I needed it more than anything. And Yasin Bey is somebody that, I mean, I just, you know, I, and I'd already connected with so many of my heroes. But, you know, if it comes to, like, a Chuck D or uh, Rakim, you know, those are people that have mentored me. But those are like, that's a different stratosphere. Like, those are superheroes. Those people will never be my peers. No matter how good I am, no matter how nice they are to me, no matter how much, me and Chuck D are a lot alike as people. Our birthdays are a couple of days apart. His wife t told me all the time, you and Chuck are so much alike. Like, you're the same dude. And that means a lot. And as men, you know, he's, he's a, a generation older than me. But as men, we can both be men. But as artists, it's like, no, you are forever Chuck D. And you accept me and you validate me and you work with me. And I don't disbelieve you when you, when you praise me. Because I know that I, I, God gave me something. And I also work very hard. I've done this consistently since I was seven years old. So, like, yeah, I'm nice. I know that. I'm very good at this. Uh, live and... Recording and writing and making albums, alhamdulillah, you know, I'm, I'm very good. But, you know, in terms of like, who did I want to be my peers? It was Black Thought, <laughs> Feral Munch, Yasin Bey. Those are the guys I wanted to be my peers. And now, like I said, as artists, they are that, but I never, I haven't had the impact in that world the way, the, the, the way that I would have liked to. And so being with them was that way. But Yasin Bey is, is one of the people most deaf that has had the greatest impact, one of the people that's had the, one of the greatest impact on me. And we've become very close friends. And he was the, one of the people, matter of fact, the main one, that said, 
you're bigger than America. You don't have to be in America just because you always have been somewhere. I mean, he he's associated with Brooklyn, like you, the way that Jay Z is. It's like Yasin is from Brooklyn. Biggie is from Brooklyn. You know what I mean? Jay Z is from Brooklyn. These people, that's where they're from. Merce is from L.A. Merce is from South Central. Slug is from South Minneapolis. You know, but for Yasin to be out of the country for so long. You know, when Dave left and went out of the country, it was inspired by Yassine. And Yassine said, man, you don't have to be in America. You know, Allah created you and you are, you've been in a certain circumstance. You've been in a certain role. You've seen yourself away. That's not how it has to be. And I love him so much for that. Because there's certain people that when they say something, it means something to you. It means extra because of who they are in the world, but then also who they are to you. And so... We brought our family to Istanbul, me and my wife. She studied out here. And, um, you know, she came and did like a knowledge retreat, like a, like a summer knowledge retreat, where you come, uh, these amazing people, Imam Zaid Shakir, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, like these people, they get th- these English-speaking teachers and English-speaking Muslims, and they co- go to a place, a destination in the Muslim world, and they post up for like a month. And every waking moment of every day, you're worshiping and studying and worshiping and studying and fasting and praying and studying and studying and studying and studying. And they basically give you, if you don't have a chance to go study Islamic sciences, they give you the roadmap and they give you enough of a sense of what that is so that you can continue on your own course of study. So my wife did that back in 2014 in the summer. And she came back and she said, you should be in Istanbul. You should live in Istanbul someday. That place is perfect for you, which is so loving, you know, for her to be in that place. And she's away from the kids and, you know, she's doing her thing. And she made friends and all this kind of stuff. She did her thing. She got to be away. And as a mom, that was her first time being away. We didn't have the two little ones yet. And so our the two older kids were old enough, you know what I mean? And I was home. I, I, I made sure I didn't have shows. I think I went to a gathering, actually, while she was gone. Minister Farrakhan held a, a private gathering that I went to, and so uh, some friends watched the babies for like two nights, and me and Amir Suleiman went with Minister Farrakhan to this private gathering around the time of uh, Mike Brown and all of that stuff. So my wife comes back. She said, someday we're going to live in Istanbul. We thought she meant when we were retired. But it's like, yo, we're in the middle of this pandemic. I can't do shows anyway. You know, she's doing her online therapy stuff with her clients, but that's online anyway. So why not? And so, you know, we moved here. And almost immediately, it was one of the first few days that we actually got in our new apartment. I'm just on Instagram and I saw Paris, one of the one of the great, like, revolutionary, radical MCs, Paris, he posted a new video and song. And it was this, like, lo-fi sounding kind of song and beat. And it had, like, a animated video that wasn't, like, a, a, a computer-generated lyric video. Like, it had a, a real soulfulness to it. And so I, I read the thing, and I hit up Paris. I was like, yo, this is ill. And I found out that the guy who did it, his, it was going by unjust, unjust few on Instagram. Uh, the E is a three, unjust few. So I went and I started scrolling through and I'm like, yo, this dude is a beat maker and he's ill. 
Like his, he makes these like, lo-fi isn't the word, but it's like these analog sounding, really warm, traditional sounding beats. And there's also all this animated illustrated stuff. So I hit him up and I'm just like, yo, who are you? Like, you're incredible. And he responded to me and he's like, yo, I am from, I live in, in uh, San Francisco, or he lives in Oakland, sorry. You'll never make that mistake. He's from, he lived in the town for 15 years. He lived in the Bay. He went out there to work with hieroglyphics and that's what he did. He also works in the advertising world. He's got a really prominent position in the advertising world. But he says, I'm an animator, illustrator, and I make beats on the ASR-10. Now, anybody knows the ASR-10 uh, sampler. I mean, that thing is my favorite machine in the world. My whole career is made on that machine. That's what Ant uses. Uh, I worked with Jake One. That's what Jake One uses. Evidence goes back and forth. Evidence and Alchemist go back and forth between MPC and ASR-10. So some of Secrets and Escape with Alchemist was made on the MPC, but most of that record was also made on the on the ASR-10. In Sonic, it's this keyboard, this like big, thick keyboard. It's got a very like warm sound to it. Kanye uses it. Uh, RZA uses it. Like a lot of my favorite producers. It just has this beautiful, like if you sample a real life vinyl record and you do the EQs kind of nice and run it into an ASR-10 and then you do the volume boost thing that the ASR-10 does, you're already winning. It just sounds beautiful off the top. It sounds amazing. But this guy Unjust, his name is Justin. So he says, I'm a big fan. He's like, I'm originally from Ohio. And he's like, I'm actually moving back to Yellow Springs. I'm going to move to Yellow Springs. I said, oh, man, I just came from Yellow Springs. And he was going to the Bay. Now, we found out about Turkey because I, had a, I stayed in the Bay for years as well. But I was with the Muslim community and he was with Hiro. And so we overlapped, you know, our communities overlapped a little bit. But I was with a very particular kind of like segment of the Muslim community in the Bay. But that's what led me to Turkey. And then he ended up going back to Yellow Springs. So there's all these connections. And he's like, yo, I've been a fan of yours since Scribble Jam days. Like, I love your music. Would you ever want to do music together? I said, yeah. He said, I want to do a project with you. And I'm like, yeah. You know, it's like, you, you know, then these conversations happen all the time. And it's not Hollywood to say yes and mean it and then just be like, let's see if either one of this of us actually follow through on this, much less both of us following through. So we did. So I, I said, yes, but I just moved to a new country. I just moved to Istanbul. It's going to take my, me a minute to get settled in. I don't have a way to record. Um, I barely, I don't have any uh, furniture in this apartment. Like, man, we moved into an apartment. We let we let everything we own go. We came to this country with five duffel bags and an ASR-10 that I brought from America that I still haven't figured out a, a safe way where I feel safe plugging it in. I've been here three years. I haven't plugged that sampler in yet because the power is different. And I keep buying these, like, converter boxes, but I just try it on some clippers or something, and it messes up the clippers. I'm like, I am not plugging the ASR-10 in to the, to, until I am sure that it's going to work because that thing was made in 1994, 95. Like, you can't just get it fixed, you know what I'm saying? So I, anyway, that's one of the things I brought to Turkey, though, when I came. And I feel silly now because I should have just gave it to Ant. Ant was like, man, you should have gave it to me. And I should have. But we'll, we'll figure it out. In any case, man. So I told Justin, I said, man, I, I'm going to be busy for, 
I'm, I'm busy getting set up. I, I'm not ready to focus on anything. So he said, okay, how long should I wait? I said, give me like a month. This man hit me back a month later and sent me a folder of 30 beats. And he said, these are for you. I made these for you. Nobody has heard them. And I listened through them and like every single one was quirky. Like it wasn't what I expected. Every beat had something about it that was just a little different than what other people would do. They were unique. They had personality. They had the human touch. Like it, you could tell this. Well, these weren't made on a computer. They weren't quantized. They weren't mixed in a way where it was trying to make it sound like a Dr. Dre record. Like, but they also weren't lo-fi either. They didn't sound, you know, everybody trying to sound like Alchemist and Derringer and, and uh, these dudes mugs and you know uh and it didn't sound like that you know what i'm saying it had it was it had its own unique sound and everything and also every single one of the beats whether i particularly love the beat or not it was unique it had a real personal touch to it and it made me feel something i said man this stuff is really interesting so i got an office and um where i record the podcast you know if you see it you'll see uh behind me you'll see um, there's like a little makeshift booth. There's three hanging just kind of Christmas tree looking lights, like the kind of lights you'd have in your backyard or something. And that's a little booth where I just hired some carpenters to come in and just build a little booth in the corner. And then I went on this site called Hipsy Burada. It means everything is in here. <laughs> and I found some uh, foam, some soundproof foam, and I just came in here and glued and stapled it all up. And I came in and I made our first song together. And we ended up just talking a lot and making a lot of music. And we became really dear friends. And, you know, he left the Bay. I left Minneapolis. He went back to Yellow Springs. I had just come from Yellow Springs, came to Istanbul. And we ended up just really talking through what it was like. And we became friends that counseled each other. And making these songs was a therapeutic kind of thing to me. And I think the second or third song I made was about cancel culture. And it's called Love and Service. And it really is about what are we really doing here? Like, what is this thing really? It's all love and service. If not, then what's the purpose? And it was one of the songs in my career. Like, there's certain songs, there's certain topics that I live with my whole life. They're like one. They're like one of the themes of my life, you know what I'm saying? And I have to make at least one song about them. That's the definitive statement about either something that happened to me, or something that I've experienced or a feeling I have. So, you know, um, I am married to a survivor of sexual violence who now is a therapist that helps survivors of sexual violence. There's got to be a song about that. And if it takes me 15, 20 years, I, I'm going to have to figure out how to deliver that song. And so that song is Baby Girl. My father and grandfather died of suicide. There's got to be a song about that. It can't be corny. It's got to be right. It's got to sound the way I feel about it. Writing it has to heal my heart from what happened in my life. Like, it's, like that's the thing that really binds me to the people that listen to me. And no matter what they look like, no matter where they're from, I believe in our connection because I know that, like, God gave me that song 
And it had to be the exact, like it healed me. I healed or knew that I was healed or was healing because I made that song about that thing. So like I made a song about, you know, uh, being dehumanized for being albino as a little kid, picket fence. And there's a woman that talked to me and made me believe in myself and taught me about life. There's got to be a song about that. Picket fence, and it's got to sound like what it felt like. And writing it has to heal me and make me know that I'm healed. You know what I'm saying? Uh, There's a bunch of songs about my firstborn child, my son. There's a bunch of songs about him. There's a whole suite of songs about him. And he remains one of the main, you know, that's my man. That's my dude. You know, I got these daughters. I love, I'm crazy about my daughters. But there's something about, you know, this this guy, man. He, he just really symbolizes something really important to me. So there's all these songs. So this, this cancel culture thing that we went through in the Twin Cities with the music scene was one of the most difficult and educational and... It was a spiritual uh, crucible. Like it, it basically, it was a detachment from some of the things that spiritually, you know, we got to detach from the material world. And in the material world, the dunya is what's called in this, and is what the Quran calls the material world of forms. And the part of the uh, detaching from the dunya is also people's opinion of us you know that like that's part of the dunya to a certain extent and so i walked around with this sense of notoriety like i was like a famous person in the twin cities and for 15 years of my life from 2007 until 2020 i couldn't leave my house without somebody stopping me and shaking and asking for a picture and crying and showing me my words tattooed on their body or an elder who didn't even really know who I was, like what exactly I did. It might be like a white grandmother from the suburbs and she would be like, are you that brother Ali? Yes, ma'am. You do good for our community and you keep doing it. Yes, ma'am. People yelling out of cars and, you know, paying for my meals and, you know, I go, I take my daughter to the movies and it's like, hey, it's on us. I'm like, aren't you going to get fired? No, it's on us. Your money's no good. You know, every time I left my house. And I mean, that's not something to start feeling attached to and entitled to. And, you know, also a lifetime of work doing community organizing activism, a lifetime of work in the Muslim community, a lifetime of work, uh, you know, speaking truth and making music about the very subjects that people were speaking about on Twitter. And the whole music industry kind of got condemned. And particularly, some people were really, it really meant a lot to them to aim it at rhyme sayers. And this was during the time when I was going on my own. So I didn't make the decisions about rhyme sayers. I only made the decisions about what I did. And a lot of these things that people were like bringing forward, I had no idea these things were even happening. I didn't sign anybody. I didn't decide who got signed or who got dropped. I didn't decide their record deal. I didn't decide who was on sound set. I didn't make decisions. I, I you know, and that was part of the the difficulty I had with the label. It's like I 
it was unclear. We never had contracts between us. We never negotiated. And so we had different understandings that I think were fluid over time about what's my role in this thing? You know, there was a time when I thought I owned part of the label. And so I probably said that and carried it like that. So for people to think that I get it, I thought that too. And then I just kind of discovered that like, no, I don't own this label. I don't have shares of this label. I don't have profit sharing from this label. I didn't get paid from anybody else's career or any other events. I got paid for Brother Ali music and Brother Ali shows, you know. And I really didn't also have a vote in what happened, you know. And so, and also my financial situation just wasn't working for me, and I tried to reshape it. And I just realized that, like, I have a vision for what it means to be Brother Ali, and I'm the only one that that would make sense for. So as much as I love these people, and the artists are not the people that run the label, they're different people. So for as much as I love the people that run the label, and I do love them, and I don't think anybody meant anything but good, and everybody's dedicated their life to trying to do their version of good. I know that. But it's like, man, this isn't working for me, and what I think I need, I can't get here because I would be the only one that needs that, you know what I'm saying? And so they're not going to reshape this whole thing just for me. I I wish they would, but they weren't going to do that. And so I said, and maybe it wasn't, maybe that was the right decision for the whole collective. I don't know. But it just is what it is. And it wasn't working for me, so I decided to go on my own. And so I was, nobody ever really aimed that thing at me specifically, but also nobody said I wasn't part of it. And the thing that that hurt at that time was that for all of the things that I did over my years of being in that community and serving in that community, nobody thought to say, we don't mean Ali, right? Or let's also keep in mind that Ali has done some good things. Or, you know, people that were jumping out and condemning me or condemning my, you know, the, the crew of people that I'm associated with, Those are people very specifically that I helped that always had access to me that, you know, are condemning me because other people did things with women that they shouldn't have done that I didn't know about. Those were in their private moments. You know what I'm saying? I'm not a locker room talk dude. I got married on my second tour. I met my wife on my second tour. And, you know, uh, Slug also met his wife at that time. BK met his wife at that time. You know what I'm saying? So that's that was my experience with touring. And anybody that's not on that, you know, people that, that sniff Coke, they don't bring their Coke around the vegans. They You do Coke with other people that do Coke because you know that's not welcome. You know what I'm saying? And that's the way it is with the people that were doing stuff at night with women and, and being wild with women and maybe causing harm and maybe, you know, I didn't know those things. But people were canceling me because I was supposed to have, uh, like, corrected their behavior. Um, but these are people who these are people who were aiming at, at me that if they had questions about me, they were benefiting from me. They were taking my assistance. They were accepting my access that I was giving them to whatever I had. And they never asked me any questions. I never had a person say to me, hey, why did you do this? Or why did you support this? Or why don't you speak against it? Why don't you? None of that. You know, and so that was tough. I mean, there were people that like knew me and knew my family, 
my kids played with their kids. And they knew that we didn't have money. They knew that the pandemic was a real threat to our life. Like, that was real for us, too. And they were totally fine saying that people should boycott me. Not Again, not directly. But they were like, don't support them, our community. And so that was a thing, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, and, and another layer of the whole thing is that what started it was women talking about the fact that they had been mistreated, which is a subject that really matters to me in my entire life. Like I said, that's one of the songs that I needed to make because of the fact that that has been such a subject in my life. And so I had to figure out how to make that song and how to, you know, be that. And it's, it's just, it was really a multi-layered kind of thing. And so I say all that to say that the second or third song that me and Just made together was the title track for this album, which is called Love and Service. In other words, I made one of the songs with this man that I cannot finish my life and career without making this song. And I made that with him. And I was like, okay, we are making a pride. Love and Service is the name of the album. And then there's a few. There's a story that happened to me that I, I've kind of told on this podcast, but I was able to tell the story of that. I made a song about that story in a way that I could not just say it, just talking. It's one of the beautiful things about songwriting. You can say things with a certain type of simplicity and grace and... There's just something about the meaning of writing it in a song that's really special. So there's several multiple songs on this album that, like, man, I needed to make these songs. And, um, you know, a couple of the people that the songs are about died during the process of making them. And in a lot of ways, this was a therapeutic thing for me, which my best work is always like that. And so... Not only that, but at, over the course of the couple years of me and Just talking to each other, like we became dear friends. So then when stuff came, and I knew that Just was Jew, is Jewish, like I knew that. He'd married a Jewish woman, been on birthright, he's a Jewish man. But I also knew that he really is about justice. His name, Unjust, is, is like a, he took that name as a really young person. It was a counterculture type of thing. It meant that like if the U.S. justice system you know, and like I said, that I allude to that in, in the song Ottomans we just released. You know what I'm saying? We all live with generational trauma, forefathers that raped enslaved mamas. That's our nation. We are a nation of people who, where the forefathers, f some people's forefathers raped some people's great-great-grandmothers. That's America. We all live with generational trauma. Forefathers that raped enslaved mamas, they toss a robe around him and they call him your honor. He handing out sentences, no periods or commas, just public defenders, meaning the opposite of officers and public government offenders. On the day of judgment, a law going to remember. You know, so I, all that song is, all that stuff is working its way in. I knew that he was a really, a person that was about justice. And he spoke about it in a way that's very rare. I, I have learned, I've become friends with a bunch of white dudes since I've been making underground rap music. Before that, I didn't know white dudes. Not like that. And BK1 and Just are people that are really special in that regard. They just have a different kind of feel to them with regard to all of this stuff. And so I discovered, or, or well, you know, in October of this year, 
that just as a very dedicated anti-Zionist Jewish brother. And, you know, so we, we also have music on here about the empire and about what's happening, about the genocide that's taking place in Palestine, in occupied Palestine. You know, and he works in the advertising industry and he's Jewish and Jewish people that stand up and tell the truth the same way. I'm telling you, it to me, I keep track of white people that speak truth from within, that have a critique of the way that power and whiteness are used in the world. I keep track of that because that's something that has has made a, been very important to me since I was seven years old, since I was a little kid. And so ever since then, I keep track of it. There's not a lot of white people that do it. And I, I you know, appreciate when they do. But this it's very rare. Of all of the white people that speak truth to power from within about their own reality of their community, nobody is more articulate and passionate than Jews. I've said that from the very beginning of what happened in October. That's the truth. And just as one of those people. And they suffer they face major consequences in their families for doing that and in their communities. And also, if they work in a space that's that's predominantly Jewish, just works in advertising, like there are very real potential consequences for him to say and post and support. And also, so we didn't start with this plan, but what we ended up with is uh, American Muslim and an American anti-Zionist Jewish brother making this album together that's about faith and spirituality and healing and wholeness and community. It's an album called Love and Service. And it didn't really come all the way into focus until I got back from the last tour. And since I was sick, I was like, you know what? I'm finishing this album. And the way that the last few pieces just fell into place, it's, I'm very happy about this album that we're going to put out. Uh, April 26th is the day it comes out, inshallah. And so not only is it an album, it's an animated film. The same way that just makes his music on the ASR 10 and it's, it's human, you know, BK, who is our partner in all this stuff, he's like, man, this whole project has human smudges and fingerprints and spit and sweat and drool. and but It's very funky. It's human. It's not polished, you know, but it's also not rushed either. It's very intentional. It sounds the way it sounds. It's, it's not just thrown together. You know, I did a project called Brother Minister that I just mixed it myself. This is not that, you know what I mean? Uh, this project was mixed by some of the greats. It was mixed by Eddie Sancho and Kenny Siegel, and I did some of it myself. I ended up having to kind of like blend the the mixing together to get the sound that we wanted. You know what I'm saying? I learned a lot about that too. Uh, but just also animated by hand, like hand-drawn, illustrated, animated uh, music shorts or visual shorts that go along with every song. 13 songs, 40 minutes. It's a film. And this thing is ill. All of the videos are a different style. Each song, he does a different style. No two are the same style. It's so crazy. So dope. Like I've never, I've always struggled with that. I'm partially blind. I didn't really, you know, I got a couple videos that I'm cool with, but I, I, don't, I never felt like the visual medium was my forte. I always need help. 
So for this guy to come in and it's the same person doing making the beats that also did the visual, and then we had to trust it. We trusted each other so much. It's a genuine collaboration across the board because he made very basic skeleton beats, and then he sent me the beats, and he just let me play around with his production like it was mine. Like, I, I changed BPMs, I changed key, I changed, I went into the things and I changed arrangements, I put different drums in stuff, I put subs and 808s in things. He let me treat these beats like they were mine. And then I'd send it back to him like, hey man, you are completely allowed to tell me, put my beat back how I made it. And he'd be like, nah man, do your thing. You do whatever you feel, treat it like it's yours. So then I made the songs and I turned them over to Just, and now he's illustrating them. He's creating uh, visual representations of my words. But, you know, a lot of it is spiritual stuff that comes from my tradition. So it's like he is illustrating and like sometimes visually depicting stuff, not the way that I intended it. But I'm like, nah, you know what? Do you, man. You know what I'm saying? There's one, there's like, <laughs> there's one or two changes I asked them to make. And I'm not going to say what they, I'll say what one of them is. There's one where you see, uh, you see like my wife and I'm like, and he made her Muslim, but she was not black. And I was like, my wife has to be black. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And then he made her very light skin and my wife is brown skin. I'm like, listen, man, this is a thing in my community. She can't be light skin. She's got to be brown skin. You know what I mean? But he got the hijab right. You know what I'm saying? He got the, I didn't have to say that. I saw there was a rapper one time that did a, a video with, it was a dope video, dope song, and there's a bunch of women in it wearing hijab. They're supposed to be Muslim women. And I know that, that this artist did this to honor us. But they weren't actually Muslim women. And so the way that the these scarves were just placed on their bodies, it's like, Every all man, every Muslim that I knew was just like, "What is that? How? What the hell?" You know what I mean? Like our people can tell because that's you know that's our experience. Uh, but he got the hijab right, so I'm like, "All right, that's what's up." But there, you know, there's a, there's just a few things that I had to be like, "Man, uh, I'm sorry, this one has to be like this," because this one will have meaning not just for me. But man, yeah, I'm so grateful. But I when I say. I've been working on this thing day and night. There's also a fully hand-drawn and written booklet, 30-page booklet with diagrams and writings and all the lyrics and musings on things. And I mean, and then the way that the, the, way that the vinyl is, the, is I, you know, it's my project, but I'm I'm saying I just want to communicate a couple things. Number one, I'm very very grateful for this project that we got coming, and we're gonna release it a little bit at a time. We're gonna give you a little bit at a time, and work our way up to April 26, which is when the record comes out. Um, and soon we'll have the pre-order, all that kind of stuff. You can do a pre-order. Um, but man, the vinyl is gorgeous, and it just it fits. That's the thing about it. It's such an organic like holistic thing, you know, but then it's, you know, it's, it's very true and it really represents something. And then also for it to just come together in the way that it, that it has, it's just, I'm very grateful for that, but it has taken me, I've been working on this thing day and night to get it right. I mean, we mixed it multiple times. And like I said, I ended up doing a, a mixture of mixes 
And I ended up finalizing a lot of the mixes myself. Like I grabbed, you know, different things that different engineers had done and I made a compilation of them and all this stuff to get it just the way we wanted it to be. So I'm very grateful for that, you know. But that's part of why I also haven't jumped back in with the podcast. Um, you know, there's so much to talk about. There's so much to do and there's so much to say. Um, you know, one thing I wanted to touch on uh, is we're in a new year, you know, and I thought about talking about this at the beginning of the new year, but I, I talked about this kind of like fitness journey I'm on and I'm very, very grateful again. Dr. Ebony gave me three years. I said, give it three years because even if I get to the three years and I don't necessarily make the goal weight, I think I will. I really do, especially because Ramadan's coming up. Man, the reset of Ramadan with the relationship to food is like nothing else. But even if I don't, it's like my relationship with health in general has improved. And I will say that this last time I was in America, it became very, very clear to me. Like now that my peer group are in our 40s and 50s, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in the younger end of our peer group. Um, you know, I'm still in my 40s. A lot of these guys are in their early 50s now. And it just becomes very, very clear who is working on improving themselves and who isn't. You really, it's, it's, it's night and day. The, the, the people who are working on themselves, on their health, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, financially, career-wise, you see those people standing out so big and so distinct from the people who are just coasting. I mean, and it's, I'm very grateful to be in the first category. You know, where people are looking and like, you know, like my my uh, my man, Ahmed Fahmi, he said, man, you could feel better than you've ever felt, like in your 40s and going into your 50s. You know, because I was like, man, I've never been athletic. I've never been on a program. I've never had a diet. I've never paid attention. I've never, I've never got up and weighed myself every day. I've never had things I eat and don't eat except for my religious law, rules. And that's not very much. He's like, man, you could feel better than you've had. And I do. I really do. I feel better than I've ever felt. And I know myself better than I've ever known myself. And I'm accepting myself. And I'm more effective. And I'm more loving. And I'm more, you know, across the board. So for me... It's like, you know, I start by looking at food and I started looking at movement. In my Then I start relating to my body. And that gets to issues of worth, which is like I had to realize to myself a couple things. One is that um, I was always, I had this very strong relationship with myself in my non-physical self, but my physical self, I did not have a good relationship with. And part of it is because I'm albino. And it's like, yeah, duh, but to me, I didn't recognize that. I made all this music about it. I thought that I, w I thought I was over that. I thought I had healed from it. I thought I had turned it into a strength. And in a lot of ways I did, but there still was a big, there still was a big thing there that needed to be addressed that, like, I did not think it was possible for my body to be beautiful. I didn't think it was possible for me, for my face, for my picture, for my frame, for my body to be beautiful. 
So the fact that it's like I, I can use it for the things I want to use it for. I can rap. I can fight. You know, I can pick my kids up, swing my kids around. I'm big. And so, you know, and I'm strong. So I'm able to do the things that I need to do. But I never thought my body was beautiful. I also realized that, like, man, I was buying, I got to the point where I was buying a lot of expensive clothes trying to cover up my body, just trying to hide my body in my clothes. Things we buy to cover up what's inside. They made us hate ourselves and love their wealth. You know, Kanye, when he's right, he's right. So, man, you know, I, and I, so that even related to my, all of this, like the relationship that I had with my body was that I didn't think my body was worth investing in. I didn't think my body could be beautiful. I didn't think my body was capable of beauty. I, I didn't know this. I never said these things to myself, but it's what I believed, you know? And there's a part of me also associated with that. Um, another part is the my, like, racial dynamic of growing up. Like, I, my parents are white. And me being albino, like, I was embraced and taught how to live by black folks. And so I've been around black people, and the, I've always felt safe with black people, even in violent situations, even in danger. I feel safer with black people than I do with white people. It just is what—it's just—that's that's, that's how my trauma is set up. And so I developed all these non-physical parts of myself. I— I love my spiritual self. I love my intellectual self. I love my heart. I love my mind. I love my soul. Uh, I get a kick out of my own egos and fears, and it's interesting to me. I do think I'm somebody. I think I'm beautiful on the inside. But I didn't think I was capable of being beautiful on the outside. Not only that, my inside and who I am on the inside has been shaped by the people I love and identify with. You know what I mean? It's almost like I'm legally white, but whiteness is a, a whole way of being in the world that I just don't relate to. When I'm around black people, it's like if black people see me as white, then I, however they see me, that's who I am. And I, I don't argue with that. You know what I mean? It just is what it is. Uh, Dave Chappelle gets a real kick out of saying I'm white so that he can also say that I'm very black. To him, that's special. You know what I mean? And one of the one of the intros that he gave me that I ended up making, I wrote it out because he said, you know, he, he said, look what God does. Here's a person, a white man that God made the whitest. He made the whitest of all by being an albino. And they say he's legally blind, but somehow he sees us and he is of us. And that feels very good. That validation is no joke. You know, and I've had a number. I mean, Minister Farrakhan said something similar, and Imam Worthy Muhammad, who was my first, like my my religious teacher, saying very. You know, I've had these experiences with these people that have told me these things, and they feel very good to me. So I've always felt really good about who I am on the inside. I knew that was beautiful, but also that my my that's that's connected to, and I can draw a direct uh, line to the community I identify with, religiously, culturally, you know, uh, romantically, friendship, all this stuff, mentoring and all these years of training and that's all that. But my body was still connected to what I dislike in the world. 
My body is still connected to the legacy of white supremacy, the empire. And so, I, I, again, these aren't like uh, these aren't like sp- thoughts that I'm having consciously. It's not like I'm writing this in my journal. I didn't know I thought these things. I didn't know I felt these things until I started having to really be with my body and connect with me, present with my body, and start thinking about and and just really trying to marry the soul and the body, you know? And now I'm in a different place with it, uh, you know? And it brought about also something that I, that, that a, a pattern that I had in my relationships because there was also this pattern in my relationships where I had unhealthy, imbalanced, the unsustainable relationships with people, especially certain of certain profile. Like there was like a certain profile of like of people, normally like older black men that are just a little bit older, not a generation, but they could just be five years older than me. Uh, that like I, I had this really strange dynamic with them, almost like a father figure, father son kind of dynamic, and because of my low sense of self worth, I created these relationships with people where. I didn't have any expectations of them. They didn't need to reciprocate. They didn't need to be fair with me. They didn't need to, they, that, none of that was a requirement. I had no requirements with certain people. And I showed up and just poured into them and poured into the relationship, and I was just happy to be there. And again, if I would have said these things out loud, these are terrifying things to say out loud. I feel like such a sucker saying that. You know what I mean? But then once you sit with them and once you get real with them, once you face them and address them, you start feeling like, okay, yes, this is the flip side of what all of my friends go through. You know what I mean? Black people, black women are, you know, raised to, no matter how beautiful they are, there's always issues. There's always issues. Always. I've known and loved and been close to a a lot of black women in my life. Every single person, the most beautiful woman that you've seen has issues. You know what I'm saying? And they think something's wrong with their body and they're struggling with like worth and all this stuff and identity, all these things. And, you know, Malcolm said, Malcolm X said, they can, they accuse Honorable Elijah Muhammad of hatred, but who's the one, but he's teaching you to love yourself. Who taught you to hate yourself? Who taught you to hate the, the shape of your nose and your lips? Who taught you to hate your eyes? Who taught you to hate your entire body from the top of your head to the hair on your head to the soles on your feet? Who taught you to hate yourself? And that's the truth. Everybody that comes out of this situation has to deal with the fact that this uh, paradigm that we've been living in, this false religion we've been living in, this philosophy that we've been living under for all of these years has touched all of us. It's anti-human. It's anti-nature. It's anti-God. It's 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 counterfeit. And it looks like the real thing if you don't know any better. You know what I'm saying? And so it's like, yeah, we're all going to come out of this feeling some kind of way about ourselves, having some kind of messed up issues. And so once you start looking at them, it's like, okay, yeah, nothing wrong with that. Like that, yeah, that's part of being a human being, especially where I come from. I didn't make myself, but I am myself, you know. And so I started realizing that several of these, as I started to get healthy, not all, not everybody could get healthy with me. You know, some people didn't require uh, this weird dynamic that I had. 
So some of my relationships didn't have to change at all. You know, Aunt, my relationship with Aunt, I didn't need to change that at all. Like I was, but I was elevating Aunt to this like mythical level in my own heart, but he never needed that. So he never really accepted it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, same thing with Slug. You know, they just didn't pick up the other end of that couch. You know what I'm saying? And then there were some relationships too, like my marriage, for example, where I was just so used to not expecting anything and not paying attention to the fact that I am a human being, I'm limited, I do have needs, and I need to be in relationships that aren't necessarily transactional, but they got to be reciprocal because they have to be sustainable. So they just have to be healthy. So like there was even stuff in my marriage that wasn't healthy. And so, man, me and my wife had tough talk conversations. And I'm so grateful to my spiritual guide, one of my spiritual guides, Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah, because, you know, he's like a father to me. That's an actual like a real like a father to me. But again, he never let me do daddy issues with him. He wouldn't do it. If, if I brought him that, he just it was like he's not receiving that. He would never reject it. But like he, that's not what, where how he's engaging. So I didn't, my relationship with him didn't have to adjust. It's just like, because he never needed it to be unhealthy. He's not spiritually abusing me. You know what I'm saying? And he's not unhealthy in that way where he needs to be <laughs> elevated in that way. You know what I'm saying? He can actually have a real relationship with somebody. And not everybody can. A lot of people just can't do that. You know? But with my wife, it's like, so I was telling Dr. Omar, I'm, I'm struggling with my wife. We're having these really tough conversations. His response was always, keep talking. He never tried to take sides. He never told me I was right. He never asked me the details. He said, keep talking because you're good and she's good. And if you keep talking, you will figure it out. If you stop talking, you got trouble. Keep talking no matter how hard it is. And man, I mean, it's like, it's getting healthier but it comes from a lot. Like moving to another country was re is very difficult because it takes you all the way out of your comfort zone. You lose your superpowers. You know what I'm saying? My superpower is a gift of gab. I moved to a country I don't speak the language and they don't speak English. So like I can talk my way in and out of any situation. That's what I do for a living. In this country, I, don't, I, I know how to order the meal and tell the taxi where to go. I know how to tell people I converted to Islam. I know how to tell people, you know, I moved here with my daughters and my wife. I know how to tell people. That's it. And what I do for a living, they never believe me. <laughs> but I don't know how to talk, and I definitely can't, I definitely can't finesse a situation. I definitely can't charm somebody. I just can't do any of that. You know what I mean? And then my wife is outside of her comfort zone, too, profoundly so. You know, you don't know where to buy a mop. You don't know where to buy sponges. You don't know, like, there's not Target here. You don't know how to get the food you know how to order. You don't know how to get the spices you know how to make. You can't get the ingredients for the food you cook. None of the measurements are the same. Uh, you don't know, like, you can't get the things you're used to. How to get, you know, I'm, I'm used to cooking on a certain type of pots. I can't get those. None of my recipes work. You know what I'm saying? Because it's all different measurements. And, yeah, you can try to translate them. None of, none of my uh, electronics work here. You know what I'm saying? My clothes don't make sense here. Like, it's like, 
you get out of your comfort zone, you're really sitting with yourself in a way that you're forced to look at yourself. And we were forced to look at our relationship in a way that we never were before. And so I just started realizing, like, man, these, these experiences I'm having are based on my relationship with myself. And, you know, also being out of the comfort zone of being on that label. I was on that record label for 20 years. I started my career with them, you know, and it wasn't ideal and it wasn't working. It certainly was not working for me for a long time. For a long time, it just wasn't a good situation for me. And like I said, we never put anything in paper. I never negotiated. What I thought our deal was is not what our deal was. I just did. I, it's not what I thought it was. And nobody ever told me that it's not what I thought it was. I just kind of discovered it by trying to make good on the things that I, th- I thought I owned part of it. I thought I had a vote in it. I thought I didn't. <laughs> I learned by, I learned by uh, voicing opinions that's just like not even considered, you know, not even considered. I learned that by, you know, having certain things that I thought we were about and then something different happens. And like now I'm aligned with something that I never planned to be aligned with. You know what I mean? I, like I don't have the choice for like any any of this stuff. The, there were statements written about, you know, stuff that I didn't, that I straight up said, I don't like this statement. You know what I mean? I don't think it was fair for them to be accused of what they were accused of. I don't think that was fair at all. You know what I'm saying? But I also don't like the way that the, that the response was either. And I didn't get to write it. And I said I don't like it. And it went on anyway. And, but that was kind of, I was already on my way. I was already stepping out into my own, you know? And then when I, when I tried to reshape things according to what I felt like my needs were, I realized I can't do that here. This isn't mine. I thought this was also mine. I thought I was part of building something that was also mine, and it's not. And I wasn't there from the beginning. I didn't put my money up. Those guys were already rhymesayers when I got there. I met them. They were already rhymesayers. It's not that they, they didn't wrong me. Nobody wronged me. Nobody lied to me. Nobody did me dirty. There's no tea. There's no scandal. It's just not what I thought. It was a bunch of well-intentioned people who all had different ideas about what we're doing, and we're all doing what we thought is best. And it also didn't work for me for a long time. And I I went in there and poured my heart out, poured my guts out, cried and yelled and cussed and argued and begged and everything I could imagine, planned and proposed and all everything I could imagine to do. And it just, I couldn't reform it to be what I needed my own life and career to be. So I went and did my thing. And it's been beautiful. I'm 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 financing my own music now, which is why most people need a record label because it costs a lot of money to put a record out. It costs a lot of money to make a homemade record like what me and just made. It costs and, and promote it, put it out and promote it and get it in front of you and get the, the, the best quality materials and manufacturing and mixing and mastering and all that kind of stuff. It costs, uh, it costs what, what a lot of people at a decent job make in a year. I'll tell you that. So between me running my own career, uh, and then BK1 came back around. BK1 was there from the beginning. And so as soon as I made that, that leap, BK1 was like, yo, I'll, me and you will lock in again. And so it's like, okay, I got it. Now I got a team. And I was able to go on tour. 
and stack the money from tours. So the tours that I've been doing, I was able to live off that and then stack the money that we did from these other things so that we have the money to invest and put out our own music. That is enormous. That is enormous. And when I tell you every single thing that I have ever asked the creator of the heavens and the earth for, I've been given every single thing I asked for. Everything. A lot of times it's not in the package that I wanted it or thought, you know, but it's better than that. It's better than that. And so the reason that I'm saying that is because a lot of you guys that listen to this, my my listeners are typically five to ten years younger than me. Some are my age, but most are five to ten years younger than me. So what I noticed on this tour, and I started to see it also in the audience, (laughs) that I'm like, yo, I'm not done. I don't want to be done. I'm still rolling. I still feel like making the best music of my life. I still perform at a high level. I still am inspired. I'm still, I'm freer than I've ever been. I'm I'm trying to make, do, do things I've never had the chance to do before. And I'm coming out and a lot of the audience was tired. And I'm like, man, I need y'all to keep on, like I need you to be okay. But more than that, I, I just... I noticed that this is, a, I think it's part of the season of life that we're in, but also the time that we live in. I think the pandemic also was a big shift for people. I think a lot of people either got really inspired by that or kind of gave up. And I understand giving up. I do. I really do. But it's important for me to say, because of the fact that I noticed it so acutely and profoundly on this tour, that I was on. And I'm not talking about it. I'm not talking about any specific person. I'm just saying the people I was around, the artists, the, the listeners, the everybody that I, the people I visited back when I, I went to Minneapolis for a couple of days, there's just such a huge difference between people who are still improving and working on themselves and the people who don't. It's, you know, when you're in your 20s and even when you're in your 30s, you know, there are certain people, and I notice a lot of times the people that had it really easy and good in their 20s, they're muscular or they're sexy or they are they got money or they're cool or they got, you know, they got some special gift that makes them somebody in the world of 20 and 30-year-olds. They got that thing. A lot of times those are the people that when you hit 50, they're not doing so hot. It's like their best days are behind them. Not always. Not always. But then a lot of the people that were that had to work hard during that time, I get the feeling that we start taking over <laughs> in this time. You know what I mean? Because it's like, man, we've been working at it a long time. And we are about we're like we're coming into the best time of our life. So I say all that to say that w- this health thing, we got to get serious about it. We have to get serious about it. Um, and I still struggle, you know, and so I, I was doing great when I was in the States this time. Like I said, I'm down between 50 and 55 pounds. I got another 15 or 10 to go in the next couple months. Um, and my and we'll probably want to keep going after that. I don't know. But, you know, I'm I, what I when I came back from the tour, I got sick and I lost my good habits and I fell off. But what I notice is even like me falling off now and not killing it, I am still living profoundly better and more healthy than I did before I started this journey. So even like now my worst 
It's been a month now. It's been, it's been a month. You know what I mean? It's been a month. But even that, like my, my fall off for a month thing, because I got sick and then I, I told myself the lie, I gave myself the convenient out of working on this new album. It's like, yeah, but I, I'm doing better in my fall off time than I used to in my, when I was trying. Like where I'm at now where I'm like, oh man, I am, this isn't it. You know what I mean? I, I, I need to really get back on my, on my square. This is what it used to look like for me to try to do better. And even so my worst times are still better than what used to be my best times. And that's the way it works. You know what I'm saying? We put the work in. And one of the things that I noticed for myself is that it's the situation still dictates a lot of what I do. I'm not, I, my discipline game is not to the point where I'm the same dude no matter what's going on. So what I've learned about myself is I have to actively create situations for myself that bring out of me the habits that I want. I have to create a structure that will force me to do the habits I want to do. And there's nothing wrong with that. There are some people that it doesn't matter where they are. There are some people that have been in prison or the military or they grew up a certain way or they, I don't know. Some people are just wired like that. Some people started earlier than me. I don't know. But there are some people that no matter what, they were, they're going to get up and do their thing. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. I know real people like that, so I know that that's real. I'm not that. Not right now. Maybe someday I will be. But so I know that, like, making an album, I make great beats. You know, I, I took Justice Beats on this album and made them into the songs that they are. Um, for whatever reason, it, me trying to make a full album on my own, I haven't done it yet. I've never allowed myself to do it. Oh, man, a couple other things I realized being in therapy. Wow. Yeah, a couple other things I realized. It all gets back to self-worth. It all just goes back to self-worth. But, man, I realized that also part of it is, like, if I work with a producer that I genuinely respect and care about and I know that they poured their heart into this work, I won't let them down. You know what I'm saying? So what I got to face in myself is, okay, but why would you let yourself down, though? You won't let yourself down. I mean, you will let yourself down. You won't let them down. So it's like, okay, we're going to keep working on this thing. You know what I mean? But in the meantime and in between time, I know that if I'm working on a project with a producer that I respect, that I care about, that I admire, that I value his time, I'm not going to waste his time. And I'm not going to have him pouring all his work and his beats and his time and his energy into an album and not finish it. I'm going to finish it. You know, so I create a situation for myself. And now also BK is, in, is on the team, too project coordinator. I am not letting that man and his family down. He does this full time. Like that man started a radio station. He's done a lot of things. He is an extremely capable person. And he got all sorts of offers to teach at universities. And this is a labor of love for him, but he's sacrificing to do it. And if I don't make good on this, then that man who has poured a lot of his life into me, as much as anybody else in this world, that man has dedicated major sections of his life to to making sure that I had a chance to be heard. And never cared about getting the spotlight. Never cared about getting the spotlight, even though he deserves so much of it. And he's also capable of doing his thing. He's an amazing, he's a for real dope ass DJ. 
He's the real thing. Like, if he wanted to have a career in DJing, he could. He did have a career in radio. And if he wanted to keep on doing that, I mean, NPR was, he, he consulted for NPR. And they would, I mean, they would hire him in a flash. Like, he could be working with Terry Gross or, like, whatever. Like, he's that dude. You know what I mean? No shortage of opportunities. And he's dedicating his life to this. And he's got kids. And his wife is amazing. So I can't be messing around with his life. I got to make good on what I said I was going to do. You know, and the same is true with working out. Like, I have to put myself in situations where I have to walk my 10,000 steps. Just got to do it. And in Istanbul, there's hills. So I could take cabs. Taking a cab is like $2 in Istanbul. I could do that. But it's like, man, if I make myself walk to the places I want to go, I know that I'll get 7,000 steps a day without even trying. And I'm going up and down these big hills. You know what I'm saying? And I, I sign up for the gym, and I, get, I have a trainer that I can afford, partially because I live in Istanbul. And again, with him, I mean, he is a... He's a real serious, great, 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 great trainer. And I'm very fortunate that he speaks English. And he's also in his 40s. And, you know, he trains me for me. Like, he's, his, the way that he re- relates to me is individual. He's not just running the same program he runs with everybody. And so the same with him. I'm not going to let him down. I'm not going to have him standing there at the gym that he rode his motorcycle in the rain in Istanbul up and down these hills. And I'm, I just don't show up. I am not doing that to that man. I'm going to go in there and do my workout, and I know that I need that. Could Now, could I go to the gym and just get on the treadmill and do the machines and follow an app on my phone and do the Apple Watch workouts? Yeah. Will I? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. Probably won't do it. You know, so creating a situation, same thing with therapy, man. There are people that I know who are really dedicated, really hardworking people they got a lot of gifts, but now they're in, and, and it used to be cute when you're in your 20s and 30s to just drink your pain away and to not know how to talk about emotions and all this kind of stuff. I'm telling you, man, you start getting in your 40s and, and, and then the people that I know that are in their 50s and onward, it's not cute anymore. It's not cute to be, uh, to be a middle-aged person and not be able to communicate with other adults to not be able to have difficult conversations, to not be able to express your differences and talk through them with somebody, uh, to not be able to manage your relationship with substances, to not, it's understandable. I understand all of it. I'm saying I, I'm, I, I'm working on all of this stuff myself, but I'm saying like, man, we have to get serious about these things. This is the time when we have to get serious about it. We can't keep playing games. The people that are working on it are entering the best years of their lives. The people who aren't are just waiting to die, and it's so sad. There's a couple of people that I was with, you know, that I'm, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if I get bad news about them. And it's hella sad because it doesn't have to be like that. And it just is like, it's just like, man, we've got to we got to put ourselves in positions where we can be inspired. we got to get out of our comfort zone a little bit. You know what I'm saying? we got to create circumstances around ourselves. You know what I'm saying? I am a big proponent of therapy because I know what therapy's done for me. 
Like, I've done a lot of therapeutic things. You know what I'm saying? I'll give you an example. On this, uh, like, there were certain things with this album that I was dragging my feet on. And 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 I realized something about myself. I realized about myself that I always, at the end of an album, I deliver the song that, the song. So I get all the way to the end of uh, Shadows in the Sun. Suddenly, last minute, here comes Forrest Whitaker. You know what I'm saying? At the very end, like the album's done. Suddenly, here's a mistake song. Oh, bloop. I get all the way to the end of Undisputed Truth, and suddenly here comes Truth Is. Truth is, more, we want more. The, the anthem of the record. I get all the way to the end of... Uh, you know, I don't know that it necessarily changed the album, but I got all the way to the end of the Us album and there was stuff I added right at the last minute. And I did that on this one. And so I was talking to my therapist, like, why do I do that? And what I discovered in talking through it is that I don't believe I'm worthy of doing something that's just okay. But if you're an artist, that's what you do. You have to. Like, an artist has to make some mediocre mid-music. They have to. They have to if they're going to be artists because they got to try some things that don't come together. Every artist does. Every great artist got some mid-ass music. It's just true. Jay-Z has some songs that he just like are like, whoa, you, you've, you missed the mark heavy on that one, sir. It's usually not his verses. But it's like he tried to do something and it didn't work out. But there it is. And the same is true with Prince. Same is true with Michael Jackson. Same is true with Nina Simone. Same with everybody. Donny Hathaway, everybody's got joints that aren't great, even though they're great. Stevie Wonder, Luther Vandross. I'm just naming my favorites. You know what I mean? Everybody's got some stuff that's not exceptional. Quincy Jones. Uh, everybody. Everybody's got some stuff that's not their best stuff. But so what I realize about myself is I don't, I wait till the very last minute to deliver these things because then I don't have time to sit with whether or not it's good. I have no cho- no no chance to judge it. So, like, I know I have to make truth is in order to finish the undisputed truth. I had the beat the whole time. Aunt gave me the beat when we first started the album. But I was like, I don't have it yet. I don't have it yet. I don't have Oh, on the Us record, I did the song Us, the last song on the album. I, I end every show with it now. I did that last minute because I knew I needed to be great, but I did. I wasn't sure if I could do it, and I couldn't live with trying to make something great that didn't work. So I waited until there was no time. So it's like the album's done. It's going to mastering in two days. Hold on. All right, everybody rush to the studio. I got something. There's no time to judge it. There's no time to sit with it. There's no time to really face myself because I, I, I didn't believe in myself enough to be mediocre, this weird perfectionist kind of thing. And so if there's something that... You know, and then there's also a whole other area of like finishing this album where that I had to face and I talked through it with a therapist. You know what I'm saying? So physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, financially, um, I'm not saying these things because I'm on top. I'm not saying these things because I'm killing it. As I sit here right now, I'm I'm like 40 pounds overweight, and that's after I lost 50. I'm just like, damn, I told my wife the other day, I was like, just one time I want to see my, my torso without fat on it. That's the new goal. I don't know what weight that is, 
But, like, just can I, you know what I'm saying? Because people be like, oh, man, and my wife is beautiful, you know. She's like, babe, you look skinny, you look good, you look young. You know what I'm saying? She tell me all the time, you look young, you look good, you look trim, you're doing it. You know what I'm saying? You look good, you know. And I believe her because she doesn't lie. She does not lie. She's not mean, but she won't lie. And so I'm like, man, you know, and I feel that way most of the time. Sometimes I gain a little bit of weight back, and I'm like, damn it, I gained all the weight back. And like, no, you lost 50 and you gained five. Chill out. You know what I'm saying? Get over it. You just This is a tough patch. You just got to get back on, you know. You got to get back to get get it back together. Um, but, you know, there, there are so many things that I learned in this particular part of the process, and they all come back to self-worth. But I was just telling my wife, like, my new thing now is, yes, I've lost weight, but I know that I still got, I can still squeeze fat on my on my torso. I just want to feel like what it's like for my torso to not have fat on it. Well, let's see. I'm not there. You know what I mean? I have never been like that. I don't think, I don't know, I don't know if I was like that at seven years old. I can't remember ever not being fat. You know what I'm saying? But all I'm saying is, there's a major difference between people that are working on it, people that, and you, and in order to work on it, it starts with something spiritual. A lot of people don't identify that because religion and spirituality has become in the West, in the modern West, we have the, they have false universals. So the modern West, white man's world, whatever, is like our religion is the only religion that's ever been. Our science is the only science that's ever been. Our idea about nation states and gender and all this is the only, the only truth there's ever been. And so when we reject those things, a lot of times we reject them, but we still keep the false universals. So we say, I don't believe in God. No, you just don't believe in a certain concept of God. I don't believe in this or I don't believe in that. Well, we just a lot of times are adopting those false universals. We're just rejecting the version that we've been given, that we were convinced was the only version. But what I'm saying is what we believe spiritually just to be true about the nature of our own existence and the world we live in. Do we believe like it's a spiritual thing whether or not I have value? That is not material science, whether or not I have value whether or not I'm worth work, whether or not if I put some effort in, the, the world I live in will respond. Do I have a relationship with reality? Do I have a relationship with truth? That relationship with truth is not based on physical science. That's spiritual. So, yes, also we should have some sort of spiritual work that we do. And you already know that, I mean, I... The religion of Islam is a big religion, so you may come across Muslims that will insist on certain things that I don't necessarily vibe with. And it's not rules either. It's not different degrees of strictness. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying there are people that have a vision and version and understanding of the religion of Islam that doesn't mesh with mine. Completely, Not completely. There are certain fundamentals that we will certainly share. And, you know, we can live together and identify with them. Those are, that's my family. But there's certain stuff that we don't identify with. But, you know, if we don't have some sort of spiritual guide and some sort of spiritual system, then it's going to be almost impossible for us 
to know the difference between what's my soul saying and what's my ego saying. We lie to ourselves. We, things feel good to us that are actually bad for us. Things feel bad to us that are actually exactly what we need. You know what I'm saying? When I first started, I started just by walking up and down the hills in Istanbul, and I started realizing, oh, when I sweat and my heart beats fast and my and, and my, my breathe fast, I am think I'm in crisis. This feels wrong to me because I've never worked out on purpose. You know what I'm saying? Like if I'm breathing hard and I'm sweating and, I, and my heart's going, I think something's wrong. I'm fighting. I'm like rapping and I'm trying to prove my worth. You know what I'm saying? Like something ba- something's going wrong. And I started realizing like, oh, for me to sweat and breathe hard and my heart to beat hard on purpose is a new thing I'm going to have to learn. You know what I'm saying? I have, and, and that's based on a certain relationship with truth that is not physical. Yes, my, my, you, there are certain chemicals that go in the brain and what have you, but I'm, there is something, there is a relationship with what's not physical. The emotions of ourselves, my own understanding of myself, my own understanding ultimately of reality, and the, the does reality, does truth have a personality? Because that's what God is. And a lot of times people say the universe, and like I say this all the time, but do you mean the molecules and particles in the universe? Do you mean something physical by that? Or are you just talking about something out there that you haven't defined and that you don't think people should try to define? That's because that is, that's a spiritual thing. Even whether to, now the degree to which we define it or understand it or certainty and things like that, what we believe about that reality is going to vary. But this all starts from what is my spiritual alignment? What's the relationship that I have first and foremost with the world of reality and of truth? If I put forward good, will good be given back to me? Are the, the things, the horrible things that have happened in my life, are those actually good? The challenges I have in my life, are those actually good for me? I, because if I believe that they are, then I believe in the personality of the unseen, of the world of meaning. And my, and my relationship with that thing, that's my spirituality. And everything comes from that. Everything comes from what do I believe to be true about, about existence itself and about my role in it. You know what I'm saying? And so, man, I just say all this to say, uh, it feels really good to be in this place. And you all have had a big role. You all have really been with me through all of this. People that have been listening to me for different stages of my life, like we're doing this together. We're sharing this together. And it's not a self-help thing. You know, I could try to be a self-help influencer and no disrespect to people who do that. I know specifically there's a couple of people that do that that listen to, to this show. And I'm not talking about real people that have real knowledge that educate people. I'm not talking about people that have real knowledge. I'm not talking about Dr. Ebony. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, um, Zainab Ismail, who's a real-life nutritionist, a real-life personal trainer, and also is a Muslim convert. And so she brings those things together to educate people. I'm not talking about real qualified people that educate people. I'm talking about people that take something that they've dabbled in and they try to make themselves look authoritative so that they can be an influencer. And I could do that. 
follow my weight loss journey and follow my journey to financial freedom and follow the, you know, I'm not doing that. That's not what this is. But I have always, there's been this, this mutual relationship with the people that listen to and support my work and what I do and who I am. Like, this isn't just some stuff that I do. This is who I am. And so I'm about to put this out. I don't know how good, how well it's going to do. You know what I mean? In the past, I've been in the top 100 on Billboard several times. I don't know if that's going to happen this time. And honestly, I should, I want, if I care, it's because I want my team, uh, you know, the, the few of us that are doing this, to be able to say, look, we objectively hit a milestone here. You know what I mean? Killer Mike just won a, three Grammys. I am so happy for that dude, man. Everybody in my world feels like we won three Grammys because Mike won those Grammys. Killer Mike and LP are so beautiful to me. Those are guys that came from the world that me and my, like they come from our world. Like I started with LP, you know what I mean? Not, not our first early days. He had a whole time, you know, in a company flow and stuff. And I, you know, but I'm saying from the very beginning of my career, we've been in the same thing together. And I've known that man a long time. And we did our first solo albums both in 2007. Or no, I did one in 2003. But his, my breakout album was at the same time as, um, I think that was I'll Sleep When You're Dead. But man, LP has been LP and he made it to the point where he also won Grammys. He produced on that Michael album and he performs on it. So he also won a Grammy. And he helped, him and Mike got there together. And they did it just being sticking to their guns and being themselves. They didn't do anything corny. They didn't switch it up. They just did what they've always done in a more organized way. But it's real. It's organic. They're, they're being themselves. Like, man, Mike stood up there and cried on that record and said, my mama did. My grandmama did. And, I mean, he cries when he would do interviews about it. He's like, I had never said those words. And I know how real that is. And I remember when Jay-Z made 444, me and Grouch talked about this, and people were like, oh, hip-hop is growing up and it's becoming more vulnerable and they're talking about mental health. It's like, damn, we've been doing this the whole time. But, man, for Mike to do it, it's like, yes, Mike comes from our world. You know what I'm saying? And so that's just where I'm at. You know, I'm, I'm just really grateful. I'm sorry to take this long break from the podcast. We won't do it again, I hope, you know. It's going to be hard to, to maintain the podcast while I'm putting this record out. And don't tell anybody, but I'm also I'm making another album that I want to put out later this year that's also really great. <laughs> like, I, music is pouring out of me. Songs are pouring out of me. I'm making, a, I'm making music. And I am going back to the places where I've been hurt and I'm intentionally healing. And a lot of that is you being part of this. I wasn't supposed to survive that. You know what I mean? Well, I was. You know, Allah planned this for me. But you're part of that. And from whatever point you started listening and supporting me, you have, you have been a part of all of this. And I know that and you know it. And people that don't know what we have, people that don't even know who's Brother Ali or like whatever, you know, we, we've been talking about, uh, we hired a publicist and it's like, what shows do you want to get on? And there, you know, there was this somebody on a prominent show that didn't like me. And so I never got on that show before. They're not on that show anymore. I don't know why they didn't like me. They just didn't. They didn't like me from the early days. Uh, they used to, a person in a, a prominent media person in hip hop used to, whatever. 
that person didn't like me. They don't like me. But they're not on that pl- platform anymore. And I was like, you know, there are people that are aware that I exist, but they don't understand what we have. And it's not for them to understand. But you listening to this and that you, I mean, I, I was just listening to Mercer's podcast. It's like, man, that is my real friend. That's my real brother. Our lives are forever connected to each other. And listening to him talk on his podcast, it's like, man, this is what we do. We live our lives and share our lives with the people who are part, like you listening to this that came to a show in 2002 or 2012 or 2022, whatever. If you just start listening, if this is your first time listening, like we're part of this thing together. And there are people that fake that. I've seen people pattern themselves. I won't name names, but there are people that pattern themselves after us. They saw us do this organically, and then they tried to recreate it. They just invented and manufactured the story that happened for all of us organically. They faked it, and then they became successful doing it. And it bothers them to this day because they know that they are, they are a replica of something that happened with us. This is real. This is very, very real. So I'm saying I, this whole thing has been about exploring ourselves, expressing ourselves together. And the degree to which it's successful is because of that. And I'm in this space where I'm realizing this is a very key moment for us in the, in the season of life that a lot of us are in. We owe it to ourselves, to our families, to our children, to the world of meaning that brought us into existence. We owe it to ourselves to try to improve ourselves, to invest in ourselves, to create to, in, in areas where we're weak to try to create opportunities for us to be strong and to improve and to move forward. Doesn't mean that there's something wrong with us how we are. You know what I'm saying? If you're fat and addicted and, you know what I'm saying, whatever. Doesn't mean there's something wrong with that. That world is set up like that. The world is set up to make us that. Um, but we owe it to ourselves and we owe it to each other. We really owe it to each other to get serious about all this stuff that we've been playing games with. That porn addiction, that food addiction, that wasting money thing. You know, that, that, that staying out of world affairs thing, that working that job that we hate, that whatever it is for each of us, we deserve it to ourselves to get serious about this stuff. So I love you. I can't wait to share new music with you. My wife is calling me, so that's a good sign to wrap it up. I love you all. See you next week. Go hit the new music. Run it up, run it up, run it up. Love you a lot. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.